0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. As you're turning there, I just want to thank DJ and David and Kim and Crystal for their leading us in these wonderful hymns of worship and of thanksgiving to God. We can give thanks to God that we have the Word of God in our own language here in this amazing passage, Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, as we read this remarkable, sobering text, we are reminded that there is only two paths. The one that leads to heaven and the one that leads to hell and lord i ask that even today each of us would be confronted with that reality and that we would want to know that we are on the path to heaven that they we belong to jesus christ who lived and died and rose from the dead in order to save those who were hell bound lord i pray that you would awaken and not only that that you would regenerate those on the path to hell those who have corrupt hearts, who are bent by unbelief, who are corrupted by a, a, an inherited sin nature, who are actually rebelling against you for all of their self-righteousness. I pray that they would be born again, that they would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ today and so be saved. And I pray that for believers here today, those that are weary and harried and beat down and fatigued and distracted i pray that they would be encouraged that their hearts would be lifted up to rejoice in your undeserved favor that they be filled with thanksgiving that they would give thanks to you the gracious and merciful god lord we we we're so infrequent in our counting of your blessings I pray, Lord, that he would, we would be indexing all of, your, all of your mercies, all of your graces, all of the many blessings that we enjoy this day. In our sufferings, we thank you that we aren't suffering in the ways that we could or the ways that we deserve. In our trials, we have relief. In our difficulties, we have hope. And even if there, our hopes can fade as far as physical health or repair of relationships or whatever prosperity we might want in this life. We pray and thank you that we can have hope beyond the grave. Hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Hope of eternity in heaven with Jesus forever. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving today. We thank you even for transitions of power in the state in which we live we we pray for daniel smith we ask that you would grant her repentance that she would believe on the lord jesus christ and so be saved we pray for our prime minister justin trudeau the same that he would turn from his sins and cast himself before the king of kings and lord of lords we pray for jody gondek our mayor we ask that she would turn from her own self-reliance and rely exclusively on Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can save her soul. Lord, we we do pray for those who are hurting in our congregation, those that are suffering physical infirmity, those who are struggling with painful relationships in their families, struggling in their marriages, struggling with children. Lord, we, we ask that you would grant them mercy. We pray for those that are having difficulty in the workplace, those that are even suffering for their stand for Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them and help them to have a faithful witness in these dark and evil days. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even when we don't understand things, your word abides as true. And so we pray that today... You would illuminate our understanding, but keep us humble, Lord. Help us to rely upon you and help us not to neglect your word nor to go beyond what your word says, but to trust in its sufficiency, its inerrancy, and its ultimate authority. So we pray that your word by your spirit would come and press upon us now, for we do give thanks to you for such a gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is Thanksgiving Sunday, and there's lots for us to thank the Lord for. I think we can... I'm just reflecting on it. We can thank the Lord for the gospel coming to Calgary. You might not think about it, but there was a time when the gospel was not here in this city, where there wasn't a city here. But the gospel came here first. Many of the early missionaries who came brought the gospel. And the fact that we can thank God that the deception of Satan has been nullified in those early folks here in this region who then believed that message of the gospel, who had Satan's deception taken away and they believed whether they were from the Siksika or from the Satina or whether they were from England or from Scotland or from Missouri or from Montana or wherever they came from in the early 1800s and they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and so were saved. And we can thank the Lord that that churches were established, planted here in Calgary through which the gospel went out, through which disciples were made. We thank the Lord for moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and boys and girls who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and testified to the gospel of Jesus Christ towards others. And We can thank the Lord that He has provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who has triumphed over Satan, who has triumphed over sin, who has triumphed over death. And we can be thankful, I think, especially here in this gathering. We can be thankful for the evidence seen here of what Christ has accomplished, even in the evidence of regenerated hearts, regenerated souls, even the folks who are gathered here who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, you're all probably, maybe you're, you're planning on a Thanksgiving dinner Later today or tomorrow, we're going to celebrate God's blessings. But we can celebrate because we, we can feast, really, because we, we celebrate what Christ fought and the win that he, that he secured, the victory that he has won. And we look forward, then, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, even as we are his waiting, watchful bride. Now, in this series of sermons... I've selected passages that fit in with this grand theme of the Holy War. And it came then to, then to look at then this passage because we've got questions about the end, questions about Satan's activity, questions even about the so-called millennium. But it's also October and it's Reformation month and we're going to have a Reformation bash, uh, you know, Take you know, think of that. What it's going to be, October thirty first, and and I just want to start by by getting Martin Luther's reflection on the truth of Revelation twenty. And Martin Luther compares the devil to a chained dog. He says this: Why should you fear? Why should you be afraid? Do you not know that the prince of this world has been judged? He is no lord, no prince anymore. You have a different, stronger lord, Christ, who has overcome and bound him. Therefore, let the prince and god of this world look sour, bare his teeth, make a great noise, threaten, and act in an unmannerly way. He can do no more than a bad dog on a chain, which may bark, Run here and there and tear at the chain. But because it is tied and you avoid it, it cannot bite you. So the devil acts towards every Christian. Therefore, everything depends on this, that we do not feel secure, but continue in the fear of God and in prayer. Then the chain dog cannot harm us. But this chain dog may at least frighten him, Who would be secure and go ahead without caution, although he may not come close enough to be bitten. That was Luther's assessment of the devil, of the chained dog. And then when we come then to Revelation 20, this is then kind of a description of what we have here. As we said, we we read in Revelation 20, and verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Who is to be chained? He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might, deceive the na- might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Well... In this question about this holy war, this this conflict, how does God's warfare against Satan play out? Now, according to Revelation 20, John saw Satan with all of those names and descriptions, dragon, ancient serpent, the devil, and and Satan was bound for a thousand years. Now, the thousand years, that's what you're all wanting me to tell you about. I've had people say, I'm looking forward to this sermon because I want to know about the millennium. This millennium, this, this killism, this is it referring to a thousand? But before, before we get to the millennium, I've got to hold you in suspense. We have to talk about the binding of Satan. Now, you might automatically think and you might automatically assume that this binding must be in the distant future because we're told that Satan is bound during this millennial period with a distinct purpose, verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years is ended. So this binding... Very important, it is directly applied to Satan's ability to deceive pagan Gentile people groups. Now, since we know that Satan is still active, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, we've looked at 1 Peter 5.8, we also know that Satan can be resisted, and when we resist him, he flees, James 4.7. So the question is, this is a key question, Is Satan bound or not? Specifically, is Satan's ability to deceive the nations without any pushback, is it either bound up or does it remain unfettered and unlimited? And to this, I think it's critical to understand this chapter, we have to look at what Jesus has already said and taught. Because what Jesus says will always be the most important thing to clarify the obscure things. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And I'm just going to tell you right off the hop that my guess is if you, were hoping, if you were hoping for every question about eschatology to be answered in this very brief time, chances are that's not going to be answered. I am insufficient for that. Nevertheless, my hope is we'll get some key principles here. Good, we're all getting a Bible, that's great. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is all about Satan dealings and and jesus kind of how how jesus is dealing with satan so in fact jesus in matthew 12 is accused of being satan's agent so matthew 12 and verse 22 then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said can this be the son of david verse 24 of Matthew 12, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And then note verse 27, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul... By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, and this is the analogy now to see, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first Binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. It's a remarkable analogy, the binding of the strong man. And so that's what Jesus is saying that in his casting out of demons, it means that the kingdom of God has come and that he is binding the strong man in order to steal the strong man's goods. Who's the strong man? The strong man is Satan. The sinner belongs to Satan. The sinner belongs to the strong man unless Jesus frees him. William Tyndale, the great reformer, it was just the anniversary of his martyrdom, just here a few days ago. He's the Bible translator. If you read in the English Bible, it's because William Tyndale did this great work he rendered 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 this way. He said this, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from since the beginning. For this purpose appeared the Son of God to loose the works of the devil. Or the modern translations say to destroy the works of the devil. But Tyndale, what he's saying is To loose the works of the devil is then to untie them. To untie the binding. To loose people. How can Jesus free captive sinners? How does He untie them and unbind them? He must first bind the strong man first. That's what He has to do first. He has to bind the strong man. And so, you untie the captive by first tying the captor. And that's what Jesus did. This binding of the strong man is the work of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection and ascension. He clarifies there in Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus' exorcism of demons illustrated his kingdom had come, and Satan's ability to deceive was bound up. So then we can consider the truth, You've many of you have heard this before, that if the Son sets you free, what? You will be free indeed. Sometimes we forget this. Jesus came to free people. But he binds the strong man in order to free the captives. You will be free indeed, John 8, 36. Now, if we recognize what Jesus did to Satan through his life, death, and resurrection, then we'll recognize that for all of Satan's activity, he is bound. He has been limited in his ability to deceive the nations. Now, Greg Beale, great commentator on this, probably the you know, most significant commentator on the book of Revelation, referring to the beast, and the beast is one of the agents of Satan referred to in the book of Revelation. The beast referring to even the beastly state, the satanic state and culture. Beale says that the defeat from which the beast appears to recover is Christ's defeat of Satan and his earthly forces at the cross and resurrection, and he's referring to to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3, where it appears as if the beast recovers. But Beale goes on to say, but the satanic state, that is the beast, and culture in the first century appeared to be unaffected by Christ's victory since their prosperity continued and their persecution of God's people continued unabated. This situation will continue until the final parousia, that is the coming of Christ, at which time the beast's success over God's people will seem even greater than before. Directly preceding Christ's parousia, it will seem as if the beast is finally and decisively triumphant over the church. But this apparent success is short-lived, As chapter 17 and verse 10 reveals, the success will last only a little while. Christ will return at this point and show decisively that the devil and his forces were defeated at the cross and he will demonstrate that reality. End of quote. Think of how the Gentile nations lived in darkness. Like say this Gentile nation. The Gentile nations lived in darkness prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. Only Israel had the light of salvation. Only they had the light of special revelation. But then Christ came, and what did Jesus say? Because this is the framework. Jesus came, he was said, he was the light To the Gentiles, he was prophesied in the infancy narratives. He was the light to the Gentiles, predicted by Isaiah. And he came and Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So because of Jesus coming, there is a breakthrough in the deception among the Gentiles. There is then an ability for the Gentiles to believe the truth and to be deceived no more. That is also a description of a Christian. It is someone, we say, someone who has seen the light. They have seen the light. And it's not because they're so clever. It's not because they're so smart. It is because God in his mercy and his grace has caused them to see the light from which they were formerly deceived in darkness. So I'm arguing that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension binds up Satan. My view is that Satan is bound, but active. And so I'm trying to think of a more modern illustration. Even thinking about Alberta, I've seen how uh, there's been many descriptions of how you'll you'll get these guys, these biker gang uh, overlords, these bosses, you know, Hell's Angels guys. And they'll go to jail. And from jail, they still have all these operations running from jail. They're in jail. And you can imagine how bad it would be if they were out of jail. But even in jail, they still have their agents and operatives out doing all manner of things. And so that is what I understand that Satan is using. He's using these agents. So for example, again... Beal, in referring to, for example, Revelation 13, 5 through 8, he, he speaks of the agency of the beast, that is, the state. And Beal says, As a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies against God and, and his name and his people, in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 13, that's the beast, this transferred authority means that the beast can conduct verbal spiritual war against the saints in order to try to deceive them. Verse 7 of Revelation 13. But he can only deceive those who have not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the slain lamb. That's Revelation 13, 7 to 8. Therefore, part of the effect of the demon's mouths, that's the the locus in Revelation 9, 17 to 19, it is to intensify the deception of unbelievers. Now, if you say some of the stuff going on in our society, if you say, you know, the the deceptions that are going on, if you say that's demonic, do you know what people think? They think you're weird. They think you're extreme. They think you're being, like, radical. And yet according to what the book of Revelation indicates, actually you're trying to be precise and accurate. It isn't just sin. It isn't, it isn't just that, but there's a deception there that's demonic. Thankfully, though, if Satan has been bound, there is then the possibility that a Gentile or a Jew, for that matter, can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That that deception of Satan is not then unhindered and un. It's it's not. He, he doesn't have free reign. Satan, we are told in Revelation nine eleven, is the angel of the bottomless pit, the king of the locust demons. Or in my analogy, the boss is behind bars. But he's active through his minions. And, and if you still aren't clear about this idea of Jesus binding Satan already, which you might disagree with me on, you might disagree with this whole sermon. That's okay. Just make sure you're grounding it in the Scriptures. We're all learning here. But, but if you're not convinced of this, just turn to Ephesians 4.8. Because this is where I find when you're looking at the book of Revelation and you're trying to trying to get clarity, it's always helpful to see what is then the the kind of the the infrastructure, the fabric of clearer texts. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Verse 7: But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended in the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then it goes on into the gift list. But what I want you to see here When he ascended on high, what did he do? He led a host of captives. Jesus led captivity captive. In other words, those people who were captives of Satan, Jesus came and he seized them and took hold of them and captured them to be his own servants, to be his own slaves. He led captivity captive, making them, as he he says in Romans 6, making them slaves of righteousness. That's what a Christian is. You're a slave of righteousness. You, You belong to Christ. You are a servant of the king. So that's why we confess Jesus is what? Lord. He's our Lord. He's our master. He's our owner. He owns us. And He has captured us. Oh, praise the Lord that I have that been captured by Christ. And He has delivered me from the capture of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says this well, even in the NIV says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. We are Christ's captives. We are on display. Now note, I'm, I'm choosing these references from the epistles. This is spoken to Christian believers in churches. In the New Testament, not not prophesying about far distant futures, but talking about people right then and there, Christian believers. What is clear then is that Satan has not been cast into the lake of fire during this season. He's kept in this limbo, this abyss for a season, and then then he's permitted to be released for a little while. But when, as it says in Colossians 2.15, when he's been disarmed, shamed, and triumphed over, Paul said that through the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. That's not future. That has already happened at the cross. Jesus had said leading up to his going to the cross, he said in John 12, 31, now, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So it's not not only strictly future, it is now in Christ's own ministry, in his life, death, and resurrection. Now during this time, As I say, his influence can be felt. Satan's influence can be felt. But he cannot deceive freely in the same way. And that's why then we can say, yeah, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How can you resist him? Well, Because you've got the word of God. Because you've got the gospel. Because you've got the Holy Spirit. Resist him and he will flee from you. He can't trick you. John Calvin, another great reformer from Geneva, Frenchman speaking of the binding of the, of the strong man, he said this, And to this end, Christ, by dying, overcame Satan, who had the power of death, referring to Hebrews 2.14. He overcame Satan, and he triumphed over all his hosts. Hosts are uh, not people coming over for Thanksgiving dinner. Hosts are an army. You know, it, it's... A heavenly host is an army of angels. Satan's host is all of his army of demons. He triumphed over all his hosts so that they might not injure the church which otherwise would suffer from them every moment. End of quote. Of course, Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorite stories, what everybody here should read. Pilgrim's Progress, you know, Christian in, in that Narrative: he approaches the palace beautiful it's called and when he comes up to the palace beautiful he sees there are two ferocious lions there and there have been a couple other guys who had seen those lions and they had bolted the other way and he comes up to these lions and they're they're near the pathway to the door to the palace beautiful and the, the porter of the palace who's rightly named Watchful watchful calls out to Christian and he says this, is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for trial of faith where it is and for discovery of those that had none. Keep in the midst of the path, no hurt shall come unto thee. And and that's the truth. Stay to the path. You don't have to worry about the chained lion. Like Luther said, because the dog is tied and you avoid it, if you're a believer, it cannot bite you. So that's a big presupposition, a big piece of the understanding when we're looking at Revelation 20 is to understand when is this binding bound him revelation 20 verse 2 for a thousand years and so you got this thousand years so that brings me then secondly what about these millennial blessings picking up in verse 4 then i saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed also i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, this is key then. Coming to life and reigning with Christ for this season. But We have to remember that with the Lord, 2 Peter 3.8, One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So this millennial season, as I would argue, is an apocalyptic symbol for a time frame when people are coming to life. Now, you might say, yeah, well, you're not being very literal on that, Clint. So you're, you're, you know, I'm just going to reject everything you say here, which is fine. But I think when you look at Revelation chapter 1 and that, the idea that John has this vision. It is a vision of symbols. A vision of signs. I better just make this point. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. The Greek word for show is to show by way of symbols. To show by way of signs and I wish I would have come up with this but Greg Beal said it he says I read verse one literally so then I take the book of Revelation symbolically and that's that's actually then a basis then for my own understanding so here is then this millennial season and we see in this millennial picture that there is a focus in verse 4 of Revelation 20 a focus on authority the authority paradigm is based on Jesus himself, this idea of, of being raised up and having authority over all. You remember, for example, again, getting clarity, Ephesians 1.21, God raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead and seated him where? At his right hand in the heavenly places, far above what? All rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. The authority of Jesus over all by the resurrection. But then Ephesians also says in Ephesians 2.6, speaking of the Christian believer now, and raised us up. Not will raise, has raised raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is a sense that the Christian believer is already raised up. That's right, amen. That's going to change your life. You are already raised up in a certain sense. You say, but I'm not resurrected. Yeah, I know. But this gets into all of this dynamic that we'll keep coming back to. Is this already and not yet? We are already raised up in, certain, in a certain sense. Verse 7 of Ephesians 2. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But he has raised us up with him. So Paul says there in 2.6, Ephesians 2.6. That we've been raised up. So is that future only? No. His point is that we have already been raised up. Now we will be raised up in bodily resurrection. Absolutely. But this helps us to clarify this already and not yet. And that is critical to understanding the book of Revelation. It's critical to understanding the New Testament. It's critical to understanding your own spiritual journey. If you're a Christian believer, you have already been raised up with Christ. Already. But there is a not yet where you will be raised up bodily, even in the resurrection, to be with him forever. You see, there's that already and not yet. And the already, as it were, guarantees the not yet. But in Revelation 20 and verse 4, we see then in in the context then of this, this authority, the authority structure, the authority paradigm, is that there is then this reign of the witnesses. Well, if we have been raised up with Christ already, there is a sense in which we are already those witnesses spiritually reigning with Christ now. And even for a Christian believer who dies today, they are, in the language of 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent from the body and present with the Lord. Immediately. Even if you're awaiting the resurrection of the body, you're immediately with Christ. The dead in Christ now are reigning with Him. They're not waiting to reign. They're with Him. All the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Colossians chapter three. Again, clear clear passages. Colossians chapter three and verse one. You have been raised with christ it's a fact it's a reality colossians 3 1 is already real colossians 3 3 you died and your life is hid where hid with christ in god already already see this is the thing we we forget the present realities that we enjoy if you're a christian believer We forget those privileges. We forget those truths. And then it distorts us. Paul even had the experience himself of being caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, enjoying, I would say, these millennial blessings. But in Revelation 20 and verse 6, over such, that is, those ones who are sharing in this first risenness, this first resurrection, this resurrection positionally, this already, over such, the second death has no power. That, that's what you need to remember this morning. Is the second death has no power over the Christian believer. Yeah, you're going to die. I'm going to do your funeral or somebody's going to do your funeral. You should have a funeral appropriate when you die but in that funeral if you're a Christian believer then you can your pe- people around you could confidently know yeah but he doesn't he's not gonna there's not gonna be a second death for him There's gonna be a second death for lots of folks there's a second death for folks here sitting here because you don't believe in Jesus Christ you will die and then there'll be a second death but for these who believe in Jesus Christ who then are raised with Christ As soon as they believe in Christ, they're raised with Him already. The second death does not touch them. So you should take comfort from that truth. But in this dynamic, you see, over such the second death has no power, verse 6, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Again, this is where it's helpful to consider even chapter 1 and, and John writing this to the churches, telling about his great revelation that he's received, but it was for these, even these first century churches, these first century Christians. And, and remember in chapter 1, he says this in verse 6. He says, to him, end of verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, what? Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You've already been made priests. It's the priesthood of believers. You are already those priests. And we will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The priesthood of the believers, one of the Reformation doctrines. The priesthood of all believers. We are priests to God. We enjoy that status even now, even during this season. Now, there's all kinds of other elements that get connected with thinking about the millennium, thinking about all that is to come, and I and I just want to touch on on a couple of these. One one is, especially when we think about the millennial blessings, is that often people they will have a paradigm where they ascribe the millennial blessings to Israel only, because they will think that oh well the church has been raptured away, raptured up to heaven already, and the people left behind, as the books say in the movie, um, I already dealt with that last sermon, so you'll have to listen to that one. Um, but, but it can be ascribed to Israel only, and then it's the, theoretically these Jews that are going to believe. But we see that the promises to Israel have already been fulfilled in this already, not yet. In fact, the mystery that is revealed is that the gospel has come even to the Gentiles. So one of the promises shown to be fulfilled to Israel is also that there has been light come to the Gentiles. So Ephesians 3.6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise with Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, the purpose of this reign of these witnesses, even in Revelation 20, is what Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So there is this sense in which the church, Christian believers, are already reigning, bearing witness to all these rulers and authorities. But what about, what about Israel? What about Israel? They just, we just forget about them? Is that, is that what my quote-unquote all-millennial view says? Oh yeah, forget Israel. No, no. Romans chapter 11. Again, probably trying to do too much here. But Romans chapter 11, in verse 1, very important. If you think, what about ethnic Israel? What about promises to the Jews? Paul says, I ask them, has God rejected his people in the first century? Has God rejected his people? Because obviously Gentiles were believing in Christ. Has God rejected his people? By no means. And then what does Paul do? He says, I myself... Am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And in Romans 11.1, you have Paul citing himself as a literal example of the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Paul believing in Jesus Christ. But later he warns the Gentiles. He warns them and says in 11.25 of Romans, "...lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers." a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way or this manner, all Israel will be saved. In other words, during this time period, during this time period, there are elect ethnic Jews who will believe in Jesus Christ, and there are the rest. And there are elect Gentiles who will be saved just as all the ethnic Jews will be saved. Both are an elect remnant chosen out of the whole of humanity. And those promises are fulfilled in the church, in and through the church, through the preaching of the gospel, in those believers who are trusting in Jesus Christ, who are just like the Apostle Paul who was converted, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. So there is a future for ethnic Israel but it's through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then they become partakers of these blessings. Now all this requires us to understand that there's an already and not, not yet. We're raised with Christ, but we're not physically resurrected. The kingdom has come, you know, like a mustard seed, but it has not come in full fruition. There is a sense in which we are still in tribulation, even as we enjoy the foretaste of, of millennial blessing again to summarize Beal Beale, uh, Beale, brings a summary he says the millennium is inaugurated during the church age by God's curtailment of Satan's ability to deceive the nations and to annihilate the church and also by the resurrection of believers souls to heaven to reign there with Christ so that just summarizes it this is the overlap Of the ages. So, my view is we're in the tribulation and we're in the millennium. It's an overlap of the ages that people desperately want to separate. They want to act sometimes like we are not raised with Christ, or they want to act as if there's no tribulation and our utopian Christian progress is just going to be steadily guaranteed. But there's great thanksgiving for believers. Even the priesthood of believers in Revelation 20, verse 6, over whom the second death has no power. We can praise God. Amen. But there is a tension, and there is an end to it. Back in Revelation 20, there's an end of this tension, verses 7 through 15. And this is where we see how in the book of Revelation, in my view, there are these cycles in revelation descriptions and then a recap description then a recap sometimes called a recapitulation theory or you can view it as multiple perspectives on the same events you know like the gospels you know the gospels are this way you look at the person and work of jesus christ from different angles matthew's view mark's view luke's view and then john's view and they're looking at the same things it's all true but it's all a little bit perspectival And that's what you have in the book of Revelation, I think, rather than than a linear progression of events. And so, again, quoting from Beale. I mean, the debate about chapters, the relationship between chapter 20 and chapter 19, hotly debated. But the argument here is that in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, it refers to the course of the church age and temporarily precedes the final judgment which has been narrated already in chapters 17 through 19. And then when you get to 20 verses 7 to 15, the end of the chapter, it recapitulates the description of the final judgment that you had in chapter 19. Again, this is not very satisfactory maybe for you. If you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, I don't have time to kind of go through it Also, so this is going to stimulate you to further study. But what you have in the end of chapter 20, it recaps chapter 19. It's the last battle. And so, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations. that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. This is the last battle. This army of the ungodly is then set against verse 9 the camp of the saints in the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them and so you have you have judgment then on all of these who are opposed to God and are opposed to God's people God's saints even the Jerusalem that is above that's how Paul describes it in Galatians satan is cast verse 10 the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. So this is all echoes of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, the battle between Gog and Magog. It's the last battle, decisive. Now we're getting at the end. But what do we have at the end? What's at the end? Verses 11 and following. The White Throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. You see the old creation at that point is displaced because the new creation is being consummated in verse eleven. And then books are opened. It's the most chilling thing I think for this generation it's not it's not that everything's being tracked everything's being surveilled everything that's on the internet you know you put something on the internet and you know it never goes away it's not that tracking that's the most fearful thing it's the thought that your ni- your name might be in the wrong book your name might be in the wrong book is your name written In the right book, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. What are the books going to say about you? Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Which book is your name written in? That's what you've got to ask. The most important question you can to ask today on this Thanksgiving Sunday. Verse 13, the sea gave up their dead, who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. So, here is this judgment. This is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Death and Hades must release them. See, there's no there's no getting away with stuff. There's no escape from God in death. You know, it's a common thing. I've talked to many people as illustration I use very often. They say, oh, well, there's no God. I say, well, there's no God, then. then there is no justice. There is no law in the world. There's no nothing. Then if Hitler, he can, he can commit the atrocities of the Holocaust, and then he commits suicide in a Berlin bunker, and he gets away with it. Because nobody can bring him to trial. Hitler was never in the Nuremberg trials. He was never in the war trials. So did he get away with it? That's what, you, that's what you're saying if you don't believe there's a God who holds all accountable. But he does, not, he does not escape. He does not escape God's justice. Death does not deliver him from God. He cannot escape God's justice by death. The second death We'll get him because he's judged and his name is in the wrong book. How pleasant then to think of the death of death, the death even of the second death in the death of Christ. Christ defeated death so that all those who believe in him, they, they don't have to fear the second death. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This isn't just for political slogans in this province, the lake of fire. We don't think of this as just a fanciful way of speaking of something bad. This is then true and is a destiny. A reality for all those whose names are not found in the book of life. What does this mean for us as I bring this to a close? Maybe a very unsatisfactory close because you wanted to have a, you know, give me seven points exactly on the eschatology I'm supposed to have. Um, You'll have to keep working on this as I will. The key is to remember the promises of God. We have to recognize first the promises of God, that God has promised things, and he has given possessions to the believer now. He has done things that are true now. He has bound Satan now. Even as Satan is an active agent with agents all over, like that crime boss behind bars, nevertheless, he's a chained dog. You don't have to fear him. He won't bite you. Stay on the path be aware. We can trust the promises and privileges that God has given us already. Secondly, we have to remember the already and not yet. If you don't understand that paradigm that the kingdom has come and is yet to come, if you don't understand that, you'll be forever confused about the Bible. Thirdly, we need to let the clear parts of the Bible anchor us in the less clear. And you might not like how I've handled Revelation 20 in this very quick survey. But at the very least, you want to let the clear parts of the Bible clarify the less clear. But last, and I do exhort each of you today on this Thanksgiving Sunday, today is a good day to give thanks to God. But to thank God not merely for the creature comforts we all enjoy, but to thank Him for these cosmic realities to thank God that Satan is on a chain like a dog. Like, I tell you what, that is something to thank God for. To thank God, as Jesus said to his disciples, not, not to celebrate the fact that the demons submit to you, but as G- Jesus said to the disciples, he said, no, thank God that your names are written in the book of life. That's what Jesus said to them. Are we any better? That is what we should give thanks to God for. My name's in the book of life. My name is written in heaven. Oh, what a privilege. Something each of us can take for granted. To be written in the Lamb's book of life. If we do that, then this is the rejoicing that we give in thanksgiving to God and to his Christ by the Spirit. We rejoice today, and it should be a day of rejoicing. We rejoice today that our names are written in the book of life. Have that on your minds even during this Thanksgiving season. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy over against such stark and challenging and striking images of judgment. But, oh, Lord, you've been so good to us. Give us joy even as we enjoy even the restoration of the joy of our salvation. And for any here who do not believe in Jesus Christ, whose name is not written in the book of life, Lord, I pray that today, You would cause their hearts to be regenerated. You would replace their corrupt, hard, sinful heart with a new heart. A heart that believes and that you would raise them up even with Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise and sing and worship and praise to the living God. Such a fitting song. That's the victory march since Christ rose from the grave. And this is where it's going, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. For the former things have passed away. Is that not something to thank God for? All, people say, all of God's people said, I think, amen. Go in peace. Happy Thanksgiving.